Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Safe and Secure. All right. Well, for those of you guys who don't know me, um, you need to know that for the last 26 years of my life, one of the roles that I've cherished, one of the roles that have uh, just been so fulfilling for me is my role as a dad. And so my wife, Stacy and I have been so blessed beyond words uh, to be able to have, uh, of, have had the joy of raising uh, three beautiful girls who are now all adults. And by the way, all of them know the Lord. All of them love the Lord. And I have to say that as the dad in our family, it's been an absolute blast. It continues to be a blast. We've made so many amazing memories over the last 26 years, and I'm still looking forward to a lot of memories, awesome memories in the future uh, with my daughters and with um, their families. And so when our girls were growing up, I had a lot of responsibilities as their dad, just like every dad in this room, every dad that's listening to me right now on the podcast or watching online, we as dads have a responsibility, lots of responsibilities. But one of our top responsibilities is to keep our kids safe and secure. Dads, one of our top responsibilities is that our little kids would know as they're growing up that they are safe and that they are secure. I remember uh, when my little girls uh, were... Uh, we're little. I don't remember how old. I don't, even, I don't even know if Mary was born yet or not. At least Ma- uh, Megan and Mandy were there. And I had decided to take the girls somewhere, the park or whatever. Stacy was home. We had this minivan. And so um, there were the girls. They were small. They were in their car seats. And I pulled up to this gas station down in West Palm Beach where we used to live. And I'm pumping gas. Have you guys ever been approached by somebody and you just know this person's up to no good. Ever had that happen? It kind of happens a lot more in big cities. And so this guy approaches me, and he begins to go into this long story about how he needed my help, and he needed me, you know, right now to go with him to the other side of the gas station. And he's trying to lure me away from my minivan, and my little girls are in the minivan. And I know, I mean, I don't know if it was a carjacking that was trying to take place. I don't know if his friend was behind some gas pump or whatever, ready to jump into the van when I walked away with this guy. But I very, in the beginning, I very politely said, no, I cannot help you. And he persisted and persisted and persisted. And finally, and those of you who know me know I'm a very mild-mannered person, but I got ugly and I got in this this guy's face And I told him, I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically, back off. And he backed off. Now, why did you do that, Pastor Mike? That was so unkind. No, I did that because God has given me a responsibility to keep my kids safe and secure, right? Now, every dad, every dad that's here, you know that God has given you that same responsibility. And by the way, that desire in your heart, dad, also comes from God. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you need to know that your Abba father, your good, good father wants you to know, everybody say no, that you're safe, 
and you're secure. Now, I don't know of any other passage in the entire Bible that makes that so clear as the second half of Romans chapter 8. So we're going to dig in starting in verse 28 this afternoon. Okay, so Romans 8, verse 28, check it out. And we know that how many things? All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So if you're taking notes, here's your first point. The Father is at work in your life, accomplishing his purpose in you. The Father, your Abba Father, he's at work in your life, even when you don't see it. And he's accomplishing his purpose in you. Now, did you notice that this verse is not for everybody in the whole world, right? All things work together for good for those who, what? Love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Have you noticed not everybody loves God, at least the God of the Bible? And not everybody has responded to the call to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. And so for, for many people, sadly, for the vast majority of the world, um, this verse does not apply to them. God is not working all things together for good uh, in their life. But for those of us who have responded to the call of God and received his son, you need to know, I need to know, in the good times and the bad times, that all things work together for good. Did you notice it does not say all things in your life are good. Did you notice that? Don't misinterpret it. Don't misread it. It doesn't say all things are good. It says all things are, are work together for good. Have you guys noticed that not everything's good in your life? Have you guys noticed that bad things happen and sometimes they happen a lot? But see, here's the, the wonderful thing, and that is that um, even when bad things happen to us as God's children, we can still have the assurance that God loves us and that God is at work in our life, uh, accomplishing his purposes. I want, you, I want to take Joseph as an example. If you've never read the, the story of Joseph, you got to go back and you got to read it. It can be found in Genesis 37 all the way through the end of Genesis chapter 50, Okay, but the story of Joseph is like the best illustration I could ever come up with for Romans 8.28, because not everything in Joseph's life was good. In fact, a lot of bad things happened to Joseph. And so you remember his brothers, his big brothers, remember how envious they were of Joseph? Hey, when they became angry at their little brother, when they ripped his coat of many colors off of him, when they roughed him up and they threw him down into a pit, was that good? No, that was, that was not good. Later on, when they picked him up and they sold him as a slave to the Midianites, that was not good. And then later on in the story, as you continue to read, when the Midianites sold Joseph as a slave to an Egyptian army captain named Potiphar, that was not good. And then when Joseph was uh, the household slave in Potiphar's home, 
And whenever Potiphar, the husband, was away, um, his wife would come on to Joseph. She would ask him over and over to have sex uh, with her. That was not good. And when she finally, in desperation, grabbed his, uh, his coat there and, and uh, wanted to have sex with him, and, and Joseph, by the way, literally ran away. By the way, quick side note, guys. Every single temptation in the Bible, God says, stand firm, except for one, temptation, sexual temptation. God's word says, run. (laughs) Why? Because, guys, he knows how he made us. Run. Don't stand firm. Run. Get out of there. That's what Joseph did. He ran, right? And so, um, and then she's feeling scorned, Potiphar's wife, And so she falsely accuses Joseph of raping her. That's not good. I mean, she literally grabbed him and said to him, lie with me. I mean, talk about a desperate housewife. I mean, what's wrong with this woman, right? You know, I was thinking as I was studying, go jump in the Nile and cool off, lady, or whatever, right? And so uh, now Joseph's in prison. You know, he was there for two years for a crime he didn't commit. That's not good. And so over and over and over and over again, bad things happened to Joseph, and yet he still loved God. Some people with a very superficial understanding of theology, they make statements like this. Well, how could a good God allow so many bad things to happen to a man who loved him? And you've totally misunderstood the story of Joseph and the whole theme or one of the major themes of the Bible. And that is this, that a good God purposefully allowed bad things to happen to Joseph so that he could accomplish his purpose in Joseph's life. And when Joseph's big brothers many years later, well, he, well, here's what happened. What happened was Joseph's rotting in prison, right? It seems like he might be there for life. But to make a long story short, what happened was that he had this reputation as a man of God. A man of God who, by the way, was gifted to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh has this, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has this dream. And nobody, none of the magicians, none of the wise men, the soothsayers, and all these uh, uh, different people, none of them could interpret the dream. And then God made sure that Pharaoh heard, there's a guy in your prison who can interpret your dream. And Joseph was let out. And now Joseph, standing before the most powerful man in Egypt, hears the dream, and he, with God's help, interprets the dream. Pharaoh is so impressed, Pharaoh promotes Joseph to the second most powerful person in Egypt. You see how all things work together for good? To those who love God, to those who are the called according uh, to his purpose, and now his, his uh, brothers find out that he's the second most powerful man in Egypt, and they're fearing for their lives. Many years later, they're thinking, man, he's going to kill us. And I love what Joseph said to his brothers, his big brothers. Listen to this, and I quote, do not be afraid. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to save many people. You meant evil against me throwing me to the pit, selling me as a slave, roughing me up, 
hating me. But you need to understand that I have a sovereign God, and that sovereign God was working out his purpose all along, guys. What an incredible story. And Joseph literally rises to this place of second in command in Egypt. And in that leadership role, Joseph reflects the character of God to millions of people. He literally saves millions of people, not just in Egypt, but in the nations around because a severe famine had come. And God used Joseph to reflect the character of God to all of these people. They got to see what a man of God was really like. Joseph's life, listen, all the way up until the time he was promoted by Pharaoh, was confusing. It was messy. Lots of bad things are happening. But again, Joseph knew God is working behind the scenes. Romans 8.28 says, all things. Everybody say, all things. That's the good and the bad. Work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That whole verse right there, that whole story of Joseph, it made me think of cross-stitching. How many of you people out there cross-stitch? Let me just see your hands. Cross-stitch. Come on, guys. I know some of you guys cross-stitch. Right? There's some cross-stitchers out there. Okay. When you cross-stitch, have you ever looked at the back of the pattern? Check it out. That's the back. It's confusing. It's messy. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. And by the way, that's how our lives look sometimes. Confusing, messing, uh, a messy, no rhyme or reason, right? But, but it's during those difficult times when you don't know what's going on and all these bad things are happening, Lord. And what, what, is, what is this, right? It's during those times that you've got to take Romans 8.28 to the bank, that you've got to really believe that you have a father who loves you and is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. Because when you turn a cross-stitch pattern around, check it out, this is what you see. The front. You see, all along, in all the mess and all the confusion and all the difficulty, God's been at work making something beautiful. He's been conforming you into the image of Christ. And so, man... I'm so burdened as your pastor that you get Romans 8.28 and you're not shaken when you go through the difficult times because your father really does love you and he really is at work making you more like Jesus. Look at verse 29. That's what verse 29 says. For whom he, I want you to underline the word foreknew. And by the way, we're putting the brakes on because this is all about our identity in Jesus Christ, knowing who you are in Christ, okay? So for, who, uh, for whom he, please underline, foreknew. He also, please underline the word, predestined. Some people say, or some Christians say, I don't believe in predestination. Well, you don't believe in the Bible because I'm looking at the word right now. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, why? To be conformed to the image of his, what? His son. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, Jesus was the first human being, and I know 100% God, 100% man. He was the first man to receive a resurrected, glorified body, 
And so he's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're following later on. We're going to get a redeemed body. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also, please underline the word, called. And whom he called, these he also, please underline the word, justified. And whom he justified, these he also, please underline the word, glorified. And so your next point, if you're taking notes, is that the Father will finish what he began in your life. He will finish it. Some of you started a project in your house a long time ago. And right now, that half-completed project is sitting in your garage or your back patio or your spare room. You never got around to finishing it. What you need to know is that God is not like us. Somebody's pointing at her husband right now, and I am not going to point this guy out, okay? So we all have half-completed projects, right? God is not like us. Listen, he always finishes what he has started. Listen, to, some of you guys need to write down Philippians 1.6 somewhere in your Bible or your notepad, right? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise of God. He will complete his work. And so I had you underline five words in verses 29 through 30. And those five words are actually five links in an unbreakable chain. And so let's see if you're taking notes what the unbreakable chain of God's promises is, okay? Here it is. First link, foreknowledge. Second link, predestination. Third link, God's call. Fourth link, justification. Final link, glorification. Now, what you need to know is that God's unbreakable chain of promises there started in eternity past, and it reaches all the way to eternity future. And it cannot, no link can be broken. And so we're going to break down the chain link by link, okay, for the rest of the message. First link, if you're taking notes, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Okay, let's define foreknowledge in the original language. What does it mean? It simply speaks of God's intimate. Everybody, please say intimate. And sometimes this word is used about a man knowing his wife, right? And so foreknowledge is God's intimate knowledge of you before he created the world. Before he created the material universe, God knew you. He loved you. Now, some of us, like, that kind of blows our minds. But you got to understand, and I want, I want to ask this question, um, how many of you here have absolutely, authentically, genuinely given your life to Jesus Christ? Can you just raise your hand if you've done that? And it's okay if you don't raise your hand. Okay, um, all of us were at that place at some point. Okay, so everybody put your hands down. Everybody who just raised your hand, you got to understand that before you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, God chose you. He chose you. That before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, God chose you. In fact, again, before he created the universe, God chose you. 
The Bible says, and you, you say, well, how, did he, how did he do that? Through his foreknowledge, what it says right there in verse 29. And that's not the only place. 1 Peter 1, 2 says that we are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so we live on this historical timeline, right? Let's say uh, right here is when God created the heavens and the earth. And let's say way over here um, is the new heavens and the new earth. Um, nobody really knows where we're at on this timeline. It seems like we're getting closer and closer and closer to the end, but no one knows the day or the hour, and we're certainly not going to set dates. But here's my point. As a human being who's finite, you and I are living on this timeline, okay? So we have memories of our past, some good, some bad, and then we also have right now, we can see all around in the present. But did you know that we have no clue about the future, because we're on a timeline, and we can't see into the future. But God is not finite like you and I. God exists up here outside of the human timeline, and he sees everything at one time. He sees the past. He sees the present. He sees the future. That's, by the way, why, why we have hundreds of prophecies given in the Bible that were later in history literally fulfilled in detail because God knows the future. How? Through his foreknowledge, okay? So we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, okay? So then somebody who really starts thinking about this, you, you get these questions. Well, does that mean that God looked into the future and saw me choosing him, and that's why he chose me? Well, listen, um, let me say this, if you're one of the people that raised your hand and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, what you gotta understand is that God initiated that relationship. Okay, now this is Christianity 101. If you really wanna know the grace of God and who you are in Christ, you gotta get that. Nobody woke up one day and said, I'm gonna get saved today. No, Ephesians chapter two says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, so nobody gets up and says, I think I'll receive Jesus in and of themselves. They don't do that. Okay, and so if you raised your hand, that means that God initiated that relationship. I love C.S. Lewis. Quite frankly, I don't understand everything the guy writes because he writes way up here, but he's got a lot of good stuff. And in his book, Surprised by Joy, um, it's kind of an autobiography, and it talks about how he came to Christ. Before he came to Christ, he was an atheist, not even an agnostic. Right, if you're new to all this stuff, atheists don't believe in God. There is no God. Agnostics, they're not sure if there's a God or not. And then you have believers in all these different religions. Okay, And so C.S. Lewis was a devout atheist. And this is what he said in his book, Surprised by Joy. He said, quote, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about, quote, man's search for God. To me, as I then was, you know, as an atheist, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. In other words, has anybody ever seen a mouse searching for a cat? You ever seen a mouse running out into the middle of the room and saying, here, kitty, I want to be your lunch today, right? No, but cats definitely hunt down mice. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. We don't go searching for God. God searches for us. And he doesn't search for us to eat us. He searches for us to love us. 
First John 4 verse 19 says, we love God because he first loved us. Do you hear that? God loved you first. Right now, if you're here today and you're so in love with Jesus, you need to know it wasn't always like that. And God absolutely loved you first. And so follow this, okay? In your BC before Christ days, when you were going your own way and doing your own thing, right? You weren't probably hardly even thought about God or heaven or hell. You're just kind of living for yourself. But God so loved the world. Right? And so his spirit came. At some point, everybody's different, right? Different times. And his spirit began to draw you. His spirit began to do a prior work so that you could, in fact, believe and so that you could, in fact, be saved. By the way, the spirit did a prior work so that we could believe and then be regenerated. He did not regenerate us so we could believe. Right? Some, some groups within Christianity have it all flipped, and there's nowhere in the Bible. The Holy Spirit definitely did a prior work in our lives. It's the only way any of us could ever be saved. But as he did that prior work, at some point, we believed. And the Bible is clear. You've got to believe in order to be saved. So how much of our salvation has to do with God's choice of us? How much of our salvation has to do with our choice of God, someone asks. And I look at them and I say, yes. Yes. You see, I've been doing this for a long time. And I've been in churches my whole life. And I'm really familiar with the long-standing debate that's been going on in churches for over 400 years in Protestant churches a debate between the followers of a man named John Calvin, one of the reformers, and and his followers stress the sovereignty of God in election, right? A debate between the followers of John Calvin and the followers of a guy named Jacob Arminius, whose followers stress man's responsibility to believe. And it's so sad to me for over 400 years in, in, Protestant churches, there's been these two camps that are fighting, and sometimes it gets really, really ugly. And I'm thinking, good night. There's millions of people all around us who are dying in their sins, and we have nothing better to do than to debate this topic. And so here's what I do. I avoid that debate like the plague. And here's why I I avoid that debate, because I understand how puny and little my mind is. You see, trying to understand how in the world the sovereignty of God in our election can coincide at the same time with the responsibility of man to believe, it's like trying to pour the waters of the Atlantic Ocean into a Dixie cup. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit, okay? And so we have limited understanding now. When we see Jesus, we're going to be like him Paul says we're going to know even as we're known, and then we'll let God explain all the details to us. But before that time, let's stop fighting, and let's make sure that we're, we're looking out to the fields that are white under harvest, right? We uh, had uh, at one of our Calvary Chapel uh, senior pastor conferences, which we have every summer out in California. Um, one year, uh, Warren Wearsby was invited to come and speak. Warren Wearsby, by the way, if you're not familiar with him, 
Get his B series, B-E, B series. It's a bunch of books on different topics, awesome. His uh, commentary on the New Testament, awesome. He's not a Calvary Chapel pastor, but the Calvary Chapel guys invited him to come and be a guest speaker. And during the conference, one of the pastors said, Dr. Wearsby, are you a Calvinist or an Arminianist? And his answer was classic. Quote, neither. I am no man's disciple, and I don't want to be any man's disciple. If you're too much of a Calvinist, you rob man of his responsibility. If you're too much of an Arminianist, you rob God of his sovereignty and glory. And I'm not interested in robbing anybody. And I so agree. Listen, as your pastor, I am not a follower of John Calvin. And I am not a follower of Jacob Arminianus. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. What are we doing in the church? What are we doing in the church identifying with men's last names? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. What? No. We're supposed to be lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you come to Calvary Poor St. Lucie, right, with an attitude, and you say, I'm a five-point Calvinist, just know you're probably not going to be very comfortable here. And if you come to this church and you say with an attitude, I'm a five-point Arminianist, right, you can lose your salvation, you are definitely not going to be comfortable here, right? Because we believe that the truth is in the middle. Does this make sense to you guys? All right, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Look at the second link in God's unbreakable chain. It's predestination. Predestination. What does that mean? It means to predetermine, to decide beforehand. We can all agree on that one. To predetermine, to decide beforehand. That means, again, before God created the material universe, he predestined us, Ephesians 1.5, to be adopted as his children. Not only that, before God created the material universe, he predestined us, Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I want, I want just to allow that statement just to fall on your heads and hearts, okay? He predestined you, like that cross-stitch pattern, to be conformed into the image of his son. Now, if we were writing verse 29, we probably would have said something like this. We are predestined to be comfortable every day of our life, right? We are predestined to be at ease, predestined to lounge on the inflatable pool lounge at our backyard pool with our hat on and our sunglasses, just floating around in the backyard pool, not a care in the world, drinking our sweet tea. And when our sweet tea is all empty, then we yell out, Honey, can you get me some more tea? And then suddenly, here she comes, your wife, tea above water, swimming to your raft, right? Here you go, honey. Can I do anything else for you? Give me a big kiss, right? My, my, wife, my wife would have just like dunked me in the water or whatever. But that's what we think. We want to be comfortable. We want to be at ease. We think that's God's purpose for our life. That's not God's purpose for our lives. Man, God's plan is so much bigger, 
So much more awesome than that. Now, there's nothing wrong with floating around in your backyard pool from time to time, okay? But that is not his purpose. His purpose is not that we would be at ease. His purpose is to make us like Jesus. How does he do that? Same way he did in Joseph's life. A lot of bad things have got to happen. God is at work the whole time, molding us, shaping us into the form of his son. I think it was... E.M. Bounds or Tory or one of those guys said, before God uses a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply. But what's the end result? The end result, like Joseph, is maturity. The end result is that we're reflecting the true character of the living God to people so that they can see what God is really like. And so we move on now to the next link, the third link, It's God's call. What is that? What does that mean? God's call is the effectual. Everybody say effectual. The effectual call of God that results in the salvation of the elect. Now, again, I know this bothers some people. They don't like hearing elect or chosen or predestined, right? But it's right here in the Bible. We got to deal with it as we go verse by verse. We don't skip over anything. And so I don't think we should be bothered by this. I think we should rejoice in this. Man, this is our heritage. This is who we are in Christ. And so what is, the, what is God's call? It's the effectual call of God that results, always results in the salvation of the elect. Now, what you got to understand as you compare verses and you teach the whole counsel of God is that in Scripture, there's at least two different calls. There's this general call to the whole world, right? John 3, 16, does it say God so loved the elect? Is that what it says? No. God so loved the what? The world. He loves the whole world. 2 Peter 3, 9, um, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the heart of God, and it's a genuine heart, is he doesn't want anybody to be lost. He wants everybody to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so there is this general call to the whole world. We talked about this in the opening chapters of Romans, right? It's the the witness of creation. It's the witness of our conscience. Everybody, saved or lost, has a conscience that was put there by God. And when you respond, what's what's the principle? When you respond to light, God gives you more light, more light, more light. And so it could be the witness of a full-blown gospel presentation, whatever it might be, okay? And so there is a general call to everybody who ever lived from Adam all the way until the baby that was just born a second ago. There is a general call of God. Do you know what the sad truth is? Most people reject God's call. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers its chicks. But you were not willing. You hear that? Jesus, I wanted to gather you, but you said no. And Jesus wept over that. And so there's this general call. That's not the call that Paul's talking about in verse 30. The call that Paul is talking about in verse 30 is a specific call for the elect. And everybody who's elect will absolutely answer this call. You say, how do you know? It's because of the chain of God's promises. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, 
He called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. And so this is the call where the Holy Spirit calls and woos his elect, and they respond. And that's why, by the way, we should be motivated to share the gospel. Some people say this. Pastor Mike, why in the world should I bother sharing the gospel if some people are elected to be saved? Well, do you know why? Because God said to, that's why. Turn to the right, one page, to Romans 10. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 14. The same Paul in the same letter after teaching about election and predestination, says in verse 14, how then shall they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? A preacher. Uh, Someone who heralds the good news. And by the way, It's not just guys like me who stand on a platform um, every Sunday preaching the word of God. It includes us, but part of the bad English, all y'all are preachers. Every single last one of you should be equipped to share your faith. And so the question you got to ask yourself right now is, could I right now, if I had the opportunity, lead someone to Jesus Christ? And if your answer is no, listen, it is your responsibility to get equipped And and, and listen, you don't have to go to some class. That's great if you want to go to a class, but there's so many resources. You could go to our website, right? On our website, there's a tab um, that says Knowing Christ. You can click on Knowing Christ. The whole gospel has been there uh, for 10 years. Read that. Read it, read it, read it. Read it 25, 30 times. You'll know how to lead someone to Jesus Christ. And don't make it a canned approach, Don't make it so professional and perfect. Make sure that you're taking time to listen to that person and respond to their questions and you're working the gospel in, right? Because how will they believe if they haven't heard and how are they gonna hear without a preacher? And so, hey, God foreknew, he he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And so that should be great motivation for us to share the gospel as God gives us opportunities to share the gospel. Now, every other Thursday, we have a group of people that goes out into the streets, and I see some of you are here uh, this afternoon, and this team faithfully has been sharing the gospel under Jack's leadership. Jack's been doing it, I think, for 12 years. Jack Worrell, one of our elders, sits on the board of directors was with us on day one when we started the church on April 25th, 2004. He's been leading a team to go out into the community to share the love of Jesus Christ, I think, for 12 years, at least 11 years. By the way, we ought to, right now, if any team members are here, we ought to just thank them, put our hands together for their faithfulness in sharing Christ. But you might say, Pastor Mike, I I can't just approach a stranger in a parking lot and and just talk to him about Jesus. Okay, but you're still called. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you are called to do the work of an evangelist. And God's going to open doors. So make sure you're equipped. Make sure you're ready to share the good news of the love of Jesus Christ and be motivated about it because we know that many are going to believe. 
If you invited me to go fishing in your neighborhood lake, and I asked you, okay, how's fishing in that lake in your neighborhood? And you responded, oh, so-so. Sometimes they bite, sometimes they don't, most often they don't. But let's just go anyway and see what happens. I'm not going to be motivated to go. But if you call me and invite me to go fishing and you say, Pastor Mike, the lake in our neighborhood is stocked with thousands of fish just waiting to be hooked. I'm going to be so motivated, right? Here's what we know. God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and will glorify millions and millions and millions of people. And they're out there right now. They don't know Christ yet, but they're just waiting for a preacher to drop the hook. And that preacher just might be you. And so get equipped and be open to the divine leadings of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's look at the fourth link. If you're taking notes, it's justification. Those he called, he absolutely justified. Not maybe, he did. And he will, if he hasn't yet. (laughs) All right, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on justification because we spent hours on it in Romans chapters four and five. And so hopefully you know that to be justified means to be declared righteous. So whenever you put your faith in Christ, God declared that you're righteous. And Romans chapter five, verse one says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And there's no way you can ever be unjustified or unborn again. There's no way you could ever lose your salvation because of the final link, if you're taking notes, and that is those that he justified, he glorified. Hey, we all make it. It's a promise of God. It's a link in the unbreakable chain. And somebody says to me, you know, Pastor Mike, but you know, I've got this friend and he used to be a Christian, but now he's living with his girlfriend and he's getting drunk on the weekends and he never goes to church and he's smoking weed. I think he lost his salvation. No, he didn't lose his salvation. You can't lose your salvation. The problem is he never was a Christian to begin with because those he justified, he will absolutely glorify. What does glorification mean? Glorification means the future redemption of your body. And so listen to the promise of God, 1 John 3, 2. He says, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. You hear that? When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Like who? The risen Christ. What's that going to be like? Some people have this misnomer that I'm going to be this little plump angel on a cloud, bored to tears, playing a harp. For all eternity. I don't even want to go to heaven. No. Read your Bible. When he shall appear, we're going to be like him. What was Jesus like in his resurrected body? 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. What happened during those 40 days? When you read the Gospels and the uh, first uh, chapter of Acts, here's what he did. He walked through walls. Literally. Walk through a wall, and there he is with his disciples. Not only that, hey, give me some of that fish to eat. He ate food in his resurrected body. Praise God. That's going to be awesome. (laughs) Not only that, not only that, 
He traveled at immense speeds, probably the speed of thought. Who knows? We'll find out when we get there. Not only that, not only did he walk through walls, not only did he eat, not only did he travel at immense speeds, um, he also appeared and disappeared at will. Sometimes he's there, sometimes he's not. Hey, I'm here, and now he's gone, right? And then, finally, he flew up into heaven at his ascension. It's like, there he goes. Okay, when he shall appear, we're going to be like him. What does that mean? We're going to walk through walls. You say, whoa, 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 I thought heaven, like, is this misty spiritual realm. No, it's a thousand-year kingdom on this earth. And we're going to be in our glorified bodies, and we're going to rule and reign with him. And so part of what we're going to be able to do is walk through walls. Praise God, we're going to be able to eat in our resurrected bodies. Not only that, we'll be able to appear, disappear, appear, and disappear. We'll be able to travel at immense speeds, maybe the speed of thought. And we'll be able, best of all, we're going to be able to fly. It's going to be awesome for all eternity in a body that can never die. Are you guys looking forward to your redemption of your body? It's going to be awesome. It's the fifth link of the chain, and no link can be broken. And that's why Jesus said this. Here's your final verse. John chapter 10, 27 through 30. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see what elect people do? They follow Jesus. And I give them eternal life, and they shall, what's the next two words? Never perish. If you believe you can lose your salvation, please keep that to yourself. Do not put that false guilt trip on anybody in this church. You shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Dads, you have a desire in your heart. Keep your kids safe and secure. Your Father, a million times more than that, has the same desire, and he wants you to know you're safe. You're secure. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home then knowing Christ.